So just a reminder of kind of where we've been so far in the life of Jesus. He's hanging out in Capernaum, right around the Sea of Galilee. He's uh, gone and cast a demon out of a guy at the temple. He's healed a bunch of people and then uh, kind of popped smoke and went out and got away from everybody. And then they wanted to try to bring him back in and go for night two of the healing tour. And Jesus said, no, I'm good. And he went out and went to some different towns and taught and preached and everything else. And he comes back into Capernaum and he heals a paralytic. And then he calls Levi, uh, who becomes Matthew. Um, and he starts following with these disciples. I think this, this story here is kind of in direct correlation to the tax collectors, I mean the Pharisees' question when they see Jesus hanging out with Matthew and the rest of these tax collectors. And there, and Matthew, he, you know, he doesn't just invite Jesus over for tea with his buddies. He invites Jesus to a full-blown feast with all of the tax collectors that are there. And there, and this is this is some of the reason why Jesus got accused of being a wine bibber. This is some of the reason why Jesus got accused of being a glutton. Is you know he is openly out in the open, hanging out, eating, spending time with people who are uh, the less than's. He is spending time with people who are like the you don't hang out with those people. And to make matters worse, in their culture, like to eat with somebody was to essentially affirm their lifestyle. It was to say, you know, we're, we, I'm, I'm with them. I'm, I'm, we're together. Um, and so that's what they definitely had issue with, the very religious elite. So all that's happening. Word has got out that Jesus is obviously a rabbi. He's obviously a teacher. But he's obviously not doing what good rabbis, good teachers are supposed to do. And this story is a prime example of that. Chapter 2, verse 18. Go to 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Let's hold on right there for a second. So who's John in this story right here? What John are we talking about? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist had disciples. Pharisees would have disciples. Rabbis had disciples. That's just what they have. So John's got some. Um, if we take this story of what's happening here in Mark and you know your context, what you see at the very beginning of John John's gospel, John 1, is actually two of John, the Baptist disciples, become Jesus' disciples. John gives his testimony about Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And upon John's testimony, two of John's disciples say, Peace out, John, you're no longer our rabbi, and they go and follow Jesus. Um, John, in his gospel, makes it really clear that one of those guys is Andrew, Peter's brother. He doesn't make it clear who the other guy is, but all church tradition tells us that that actually is John the Apostle. So John and Andrew used to be John the Baptist. I know this is kind of confusing, but John, the Apostle Jesus loved, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation, and Andrew, who becomes one of the disciples, who's Peter's brother, they used to be John the Baptist's disciples. They go and become Jesus' disciples, but there's still some of John's disciples left. And these are the same guys who actually are in partnership with confusion that the Pharisees have of going, dude, we're out here in the desert eating bugs and honey and fasting because we're John's disciples. 
And the Pharisees, they're doing all their fasting and they're, you know, you know, demonstrative in their prayers. And it's obvious in the things that they do. And so they have this fasting thing in common. And they're looking at this new rabbi, Jesus, and they're out, you know, if you... Um, if you kind of know where the story is going, likely the wedding feast in Cana has already happened at this point. He's been at this week-long party, drinking and eating at this wedding. Uh, he just got through having this big old center dinner with Levi, Matthew, and all these tax collectors. And they're going, man, this doesn't look like what rabbis do. And so they're, they're, they're having big red flags at this moment. And so it says, some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples... And the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not. And so this is how Jesus answers this big question. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So hold up, that's... Again, this is, this is Jesus. He's been pretty clear and straightforward about who he is and what he's doing to this point. But they come to him and they go like, hey, we see John's disciples and other guys who follow different rabbis. They're fasting. But your disciples, they're not fasting. Why is that? And Jesus goes, the first words out of his mouth, the bridegroom. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa we're not talking about weddings. Like, we're talking about fasting. And Jesus goes, uh, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? So what is happening here is, if you know a little bit of the Old Testament type, side of stuff, over and over again, when God refers to the nation of Israel, he refers to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, as his bride. That's why we have um, this, the book of Hosea, where there's all this messed up parallel between um, Hosea and God asking him to go marry this prostitute and uh, he marries this woman out of the prostitution, and then she co continues to go back and, and continues to go back and sell herself, and she's continuing to give herself away. And it's this whole big uh, illustration of the way God has related to the nation of Israel, as God has been the bride, or as God has been the groom of his people, and they've continued to whore themselves out to all these other false gods and to give themselves away to all these people while God has remained faithful to them. So the nation of Israel and all the Jewish people, they understood in their mind, and this is Jesus answering this question to religious people who knew the word, and he's going, Hey, let me talk to you about brides and grooms, because this is what you know the scripture. And so immediately when he starts talking about bride and groom, their mind doesn't go, Jesus, why are you talking about weddings? They go, oh, 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 we asked you a religious, spiritual question. You're giving us a Bible answer. And he goes, when the groom is here, you don't fast. And they understood this from the wedding side of things. A wedding for them lasted five, six days usually. If it was your second wedding, if it was a wife whose husband's passed away, it would only last three when she had her next wedding. But when you had a wedding, it was a week-long feast. And everybody knew at a wedding, you were going to eat and drink and celebrate and party. But they also knew that fasting was a spiritual discipline that was done in order to do what? In order to get closer to God. I'm going to withhold or abstain from food. They didn't fast from things like we talk. We talk, I'm fasting for from watching the Braves game, or I'm fasting from golf this week, or I'm fasting from social media. They were like, no, no, their real fasting was I'm going to abstain from food 
for the sake of growing deeper spiritually in a relationship with God. And all of the rabbis, John's disciples were included in this as well. It was a practice that they would do because their whole purpose of being a rabbi was to lead people closer to God. And so they see Jesus show up and he's this rabbi and he's not doing that. And then Jesus uses this metaphor to explain why that's not happening. He goes, essentially what he's saying here is, I am the groom. And when you have a wedding, you party. He's correlating that to fasting. He's going, the whole reason you fast is to get closer to God. And so you're asking, why are my disciples not fasting? It's because they cannot get any closer to God than walking around these streets with me. This is as close to God as you can get, us partying at Matthew's house. This is as close to God as you can get, us going to a wedding in Cana. It's as close as you can get to God, us going to Matthew's tax collector booth and asking him to come in. Why are my guys not fasting? Because they cannot get any closer to God than they are right now, which also means I am God. And this is kind of his... We read it and go, oh, that's Jesus speaking in these, you know, cloak and dagger metaphors. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to people who have the first five books of the Bible memorized and know all these illustrations that God uses for the type of God he is and how he relates to the nation of Israel. He uses metaphors like I'm the groom and you're my bride. I'm the father and you're my one and only son. And so when Jesus says this, he's not trying to be secret to them because he knows that they know the word. What he's trying to do is help them understand I'm the one that all of those implications in the Old Testament pointed to and spoke about, and now I am here in your presence. That's why he says big words like, um, but, the time, um, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So he's, he's again... Again, they would know, okay, there's this, this groom who's going to come, and, there's, and while he's here, we celebrate, and then when he goes, fast. And again, that's kind of the time of the day we live in right now. And then, which all of that I don't think is even the main point of this passage. The next part is Jesus gets what I do think is a little bit more illustrative and just kind of speaks in parables and illustrations. Verse 21, he continues to explain it using an object lesson. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on a garment, and if he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours out, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. And this is one of those old parts of the Bible that many times, you know, us as guys, we come to and go, Cool, Jesus. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, like, so let me try to explain the point that he's making here, and then, and then it's a really, really, really solid point, and we'll try to explain what in the world does that mean for our lives. So what Jesus is saying here is you guys have this tradition, and your tradition is that a religious person, a, a rabbi, a religious teacher, comes and does fasting, and he gets people to fast, and that's your tradition. That's the old way of doing that. And what Jesus is trying to, the point that he's trying to make in this parable is I am not coming to continue on your old traditions. I'm coming to start something new. That's why he gives this, these two metaphors about 
patch being sewed on an old garment that hasn't been shrunk. Now, I know most of you guys in this room, you don't probably do a whole lot of laundry, or maybe you do, which is awesome. I would doubt that many of you do a whole lot of sewing, right? Raise your hand if you're sewing and patching stuff up. Okay, we got a couple of guys. All right, way to go. That's awesome. Uh, I, I figured there would be, be a few. Um, again, it's a great way to keep a, you know something to continue to be used instead of having to toss it out and go buy a new one. But the point he's making here with the garment stuff is you don't take the patch and then have it be an unshrunk piece of cloth that you're putting on something that has already sh- it's used, it's, it's been weathered, it's already shrunk the, mu- the amount it's going to. If you put the patch on that thing, what it's actually going to do is it's going to make the small tear that was already there worse as it pulls uh, that apart. So, okay, so he's saying you don't take something new and add that something new to something old. Same thing with the wineskins. You know, the, the science behind that is um, when you put new wine into new wineskins, the new wineskins are able to stretch as the fermentation process takes place as the wine really becomes wine that you can um, really enjoy because it, uh, it creates the, the good libations that, that wine creates for people in that day and age. It allows those wineskins to stretch. And what he's saying is, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins because both the wine and the wineskin is going to be ruined as that fermentation process happens and all the oxidation, I don't know the science behind it, but it bursts because it, it's, it's fermenting and the air pressure in there busts it and the wine falls on the ground, it's ruined, the wineskin bursts, it's ruined. Again, the whole principle here is you cannot add something new to something old. And the whole point Jesus is making here And I think they would have got it. We read it and we go, I don't know what you're saying. The whole point that he's making here, and this is where they probably would have left kind of jaws dropped, is I did not come to keep up with your religious traditions. And this is not just Jesus coming in on the scene and going, I just want to be a rebel for the sake of being a rebel. Like we know those kind of people, Uh, you know, they're like the, the... We've been some of those employees at times, or maybe you've hired some of those employees at times who, like, they just rebel against the system because they just want to. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm just a rebel for the sake of being known as the rebellious person. This is not what Jesus is doing. He's coming in and saying, there was an old system and way of doing these things, and I am making things new. You used to get to God through your good works. I am coming and I am making a way for you to get to God through my good work. You used to have your sins covered up by sacrificing an animal to cover your sins. I am coming on the scene now and I will be the sacrifice that will cover your sins if your faith is in me. You used to try to work to God, but I am God who has come to you. That's why my boys, these guys I got with me, that's why they're not fasting. Because I'm the God who came to them. And since I'm here with them right now, we're eating, we're drinking, we're laughing, we're having a good time. Because God is in the building. God is on the streets with his people. And that's the point that he's trying to make. I'm not coming to to make you, I'm not trying to make an old thing or thing that used to be here better. I'm coming here to make things new. Now, what in the world does that mean for us? Well, first of all, if we're looking at Jesus again, part of the reason we want to navigate and lean into this is we want to see Jesus as the man of God. And what he says here is that Jesus, as a man of God on the scene, he comes in and his, his whole thing is like, if I am the true man of God representation of God here on earth and what it looks like to live rule manhood, 
the, <clears throat> the big manhood lesson we learn from Jesus is a man of God is not somebody who exists in an environment just for the sake of making it marginally better. A man of God who is someone who exists in an environment for the sake of making it new. So I didn't come here to just be a father who is a little bit better than my father was. I came here to make the Shoemake family name something new. I didn't just, you don't just take the job that you take to make the job a little bit better. I'm actually coming, and this is the, the beauty of being a follower of Jesus. I am actually in this environment to make it new, to do things here that have never been done, not in this like weird trailblazer entrepreneur way, but to realize that the living God is living inside of me and he's going to bring new life into the every circumstance and situation that I'm a part of because he's actually living through me. Now, the problem is for a lot of us, the way we relate to Jesus is the patchwork way or the wineskins way. Most men, when they come to Jesus, it's okay, <clears throat> I'm coming to Jesus and he's going to make me better. I am who I am. I'm going to add some Jesus to me and then I'll be better. Because most of the Christianity that you've been fed your whole life is just behavior modification. That's why most men don't want it because it's like, oh, I just got to be a good boy. And for most of us, it's like, well, it's just rule, more rules to follow, and I, I don't really like that. You know, we, we've always bucked against rules, and we all were teenagers at some point. <laughs> yeah, and so what I, what I need you to understand is like, uh, here, here, I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. This is a, it's a Frappuccino. I tried to find cold brew because I don't really personally like the stuff Jessica does. It's, it's like sweetener with a, a drip of coffee in it. Um, but, but she really enjoys these things, and, and they are sweet. You know, Eric's nodding his head. He, 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 he could drink one of these right now. He's, he's frowning on it. He frowns upon this, okay? Um, so we'll say this is, this is your old life. Like, this is, this is life in sin. This is like the life without Jesus. And again, you know this. Like, this life can be pretty sweet sometimes. And like sometimes when we go and try to um, witness to people who are not following Jesus, we're like, oh, it's so bad. And they're like, no, it's so good. Like, I get to smoke pot and, no, and not feel bad about it. Like, I get to, you know, get drunk and party every weekend and, you know, try to hook up with who I want to hook up with. And I'm on my seventh marriage, but it's all good. I got a new, there's this new app called Tinder and I found it and I can find even more people to get married to. And, and this, I mean, and for them, again, they have some bad moments where like the bottom falls out or, you know, the Sunday morning coming down type of thing happens. But for the most part, this is sweet. And this is, this is, this is okay. And, and everybody in this room, you have this point in your own life where you're like, I was living in sin. This was who I was. This is my old life. And it was what it was. And then you have the Jesus side of stuff. And this will say, this is, you know, this orange juice, OJ, only Jesus. And this is, this is you. you, you come to him and what happens in this life is like, this is this new life. This is this Bible study. This is going to church every week. This is all these things. And, and this is me being made righteous. This is me being made new. But what happens with a lot of us is we think that this is kind of how Christianity works. Here I was with my life and Jesus is a complimentary addition to me. Well, we don't understand, and you know this because there are two sitting here. These two things are diametrically opposed to each other when mixed. This is disgusting. This is not coffee and cream. This is coffee and OJ. And what we think is like, okay, I'm just going to add some Jesus in here to my life. And it's going to be better. Now, did this thing become better or worse? 
much worse, right? Like, it even, I mean, it smells terrible. I don't want to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, we're not going to go uh, sixth grade lunch table and, and make somebody take a drink of this. But you know as well as I do, that's, that's terrible. That's disgusting. And what we, this, this is the problem. And this is why some of you have been repulsed by faith. And this is why there have been times in your life, maybe you don't even realize this, other people have been repulsed by your faith because you were trying to add some Jesus to your old life. And in the same way that the, the garment became worse because the hole got bigger, in the same way that the wineskins burst when the new wine got poured in, when you just try to add Jesus to your old life, it doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. It makes it worse for you. Because, and you've been here. You feel all this guilt and shame because you can't live up. You can't do this. And you feel like, man, I watched this in my own, this is my own dad's story. He tried to do some behavior modification. We started going to church in eighth grade. Tried to quit smoking pot. Did for a little while. Stopped smoking pot. Started smoking cigarettes and cigars like freight train. It was like one addiction turned into another addiction. You know, things got a little bit better. Things started going in a little bit away. And then I don't know exactly what triggered it or what happened, but I went from having a dad who <clears throat> smoked pot on occasion, you know, would you know, have a beer, a beer or three or four or five or seven on, on a weekend and wasn't what I would even, at that point in my life around seventh or eighth grade, I wouldn't even necessarily, I, I said my dad does those things. I wouldn't have even said my dad's addicted to those things and they're drastically changing all of who he is. Something happened, and this is while, while we have started going to church, while we've become members of Whitesburg Christian Church, while I've been baptized as an eighth grader, something happened. I don't know what it was right there. I can't put my finger on it. I still haven't been able to, and I can't ask my dad what it is because he's not here anymore. Something happened during that season, and he became way worse. My parents ended up getting divorced. He went into a, um, started using narcotics and, and, and just completely fell off the deep end. And I think some of it was because he bought the lie that Jesus was going to try, Jesus' whole purpose in his life was to make him be a good little boy and to make him better and to not make him new. And when he tried that as long as he did and he didn't feel like he was the good little boy or he still struggled with the sins that he had from his childhood, he still struggled with the things that were going on in his life, he still had a hard time and those strongholds hadn't been completely broken there came this point where it's just like, I'm just going to surrender to that. And he just completely gave in. And you've seen that in people's life before. You're like, man, you were so close. I thought you were there. Like, we got you baptized. You start, you came to men's ministry three times. And, and, and I can think of, I, got, I, I can close my eyes and see faces of guys who were like in there and doing things. And something, like, it's almost like going into trying to be a good Jesus follower somehow made things worse. And, and, and I think some of that is what Jesus is after here. If you buy the lie that Jesus is just coming into your life to make it better, it sounds hard to say, but if you buy the lie that Jesus is just coming into your life to make it better, he, it's going to make it worse. And I don't know how long it may take for that to happen, you may never experience that in your life, but you may become this person who is the religious maniac who you thought Jesus came into your life and make it better. And what only happened really is Jesus came into your life and made it crazy religious. And now your kids completely rebel in that environment because they entered into a father who is supposed to be 
representation of the Father God who gave them both law and love, both grace and truth, and all they ever got from you because all you bought into was a God who just gives law and a, a God who just gives truth, and that's all you could ever give your kid. You could never give them grace, and you could never give them love because you didn't buy into a God who gives love and who gives grace. You just wanted the one who gets law and who gives truth. All they got was that from you, and so they completely rebelled because they didn't get a God. They didn't see the love of the Father. They didn't see the grace of the Father through you because all you bought into was a God who changes your behavior. And so you rejoiced in your religion and failed to give them a relationship with the Father because you never really had one with him either. And for all of us, we have these tendencies and propensities to miss out on Jesus making us new because I'll be honest with ourselves right here, guys. Sometimes it's easier to be a servant than it is a son. So this past Sunday in Hebrews, we, we talked about this, the difference between Moses and Jesus. In that passage in Hebrews 3, the author of Hebrews says, Moses, he's talking about the house. He says, Moses, the household of God, the family of God. He says, Moses was a servant in the house. But Jesus is much greater than Moses because Jesus is not a servant. Jesus is a son. Now, we know, we've already talked about this a lot in Hebrews, and we've talked about this in here. Through Jesus and his redemption, go back to Ephesians, he has, we have been adopted into the family of God, which means by Jesus, by his redemptive work on the cross and his resurrection, we have actually been, a, if by faith in Christ, we have been adopted into this family. So what do we become if you have a penis? A son. So we're sons as well. But the problem is, and this is what Jesus came to do that Moses wasn't. Moses was the servant. And many times for us in life, we would rather continue on in servant. Because if I'm a servant, it's like you are, you are at work. If I do good, what happens? I get rewarded. I get a raise. I get a promotion. But how many of you have probably had a time in your faith journey where you're feeling like, I'm praying like crazy. I'm, I've tried this fasting thing. I got really desperate and served in kids ministry. <laughs> Real desperate, Josh says. I, I tried to do all these things and my life got worse. Like things got harder. Debt got more. The cancer didn't go away. My wife was taken from me. My kids continue to rebel. I'm doing all these things. And that's where it would be easier just to be a servant. Because if I'm a servant, there is a tactile rule that says if A plus B equals C. If I do good, good happens to me. But that is not our reality. But I think sometimes that's what we would want. And the other side of that is true. <clears throat> if I'm a servant and I mess up, I get punished. And there's this uh, judge and jury in our brain that goes, I've screwed up. I'm in trouble. I don't deserve the good love of God. I, there, there needs to be punishment for this. And I should be punished because of how bad I've messed up. Because that's what happens to servants. If a servant gets caught robbing from the house, well, they get their butt whooped. And maybe they get brought in, but maybe not. 
if a servant gets caught, you know, doing something wrong or telling a lie, well, there's punishment for that. But it's different with a son. A son has to be someone who, and again, this is our story, a son has to be someone who perpetually receives reckless love from a father. That's the prodigal son's story. That's what that word prodigal means, reckless. So that we, that we in those moments where we would rather be the servant, because what did the son want to come back and be for the father in the prodigal son's story? Yeah. And, and, and guys, I'm telling you, that tension between I messed up, I want to be a servant versus a God who says, shut your freaking mouth. I, you can't be a servant in my house. You have my bloodline. Are you crazy? What are you, what are you saying you want to come and be a servant in my house? Do you know who you are? Man, we are going to fight against that tension our whole entire lives. And Satan knows that. So what he's going to tell you is you don't deserve a place in this father's house anymore. Go and serve. Be one of the indentured servants. Go work your way out. Here's what it is. This is the line. Work your way out of what you've messed up. Where God says, get the ring, get the robe, kill the cow, start the party. And you can either buck against that or you can let him put the garment on your shoulders, put the ring on your finger, and get on the dance floor and celebrate the fact that your father loves you recklessly and says, son, I have not come to make your life better. I've come to make your life new.